0: 1st Samuel chapter 30 if you would when I was in the seventh grade the PE teacher at the school that I was going to his name was Bob Bodner and we called him the Wolfman because he looked like Wolfman Jack. If you remember, you know, that radio personality with the big hair and the big beard. And he looked a lot like that. And so we kind of uh, not so warmly named, nicknamed him uh, that. And he used to make us run. And I remember on some of those hot September, October afternoons, doing that two-mile, that three-mile run that he would make us go on. And, and, and just the, you know, heat is just bearing down, and he would have us run, and we had to do it in, 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 in such a, a time or such a fashion, or, you know, we had to be under a certain time limit, or else he would make us do push-ups and sit-ups for the rest of the period. And I remember some of those times just running on that last leg, and you're just dying and feeling like, you know, I can't, Take another step. I'm not going to make it. Just feeling almost faint with the sun just beating down upon you. Well, here in 1 Samuel chapter 30, we see some men who felt that same way. They came to a point where they were just like, man, we can't take another step. We can't go on. Now, in 1 Samuel chapter 30, We see that David is going through some difficult and dark days. And we saw in our last study that David is here in a backslidden state. He's been living with the Philistines for 16 months. He's been assigned to a city called Ziglag. And he went and he set up camp there. He and his men and all of their families. But things really hit an all-time low in David's life when the Philistines decided to wage warfare against the people of Israel against the people of God, and David gathers his men and decides to fight with the Philistines against Israel, against the people of God, against the very people that David has been called to lead. But God doesn't let it happen. And we noted this in our study last time, that the Philistine generals object to David's presence in their army, and they tell Achish, their king, to send David and his men back home to Ziglag. Now, this was divine intervention on the part of the Lord, sparing David from doing something that he would ultimately regret. Now, you would have thought that David would have realized this, that he would have been able to see it. But he's so out of touch with the Lord at this time that he's only discouraged. I mean, he's bummed out. He's dejected as he's on his way back to Ziglag, that, that he is just feeling unwanted and unneeded. But it's there as he approaches Ziglag, that the Lord is really going to get his attention. You see, while David and his men were away there in Gath with the armies of the Philistines, the Lord allowed the Amalekites to attack Ziglag. And they burned it to the ground and they took captive all of the the families of those men who were with David. And so David and his men, picture this, they've been traveling from Gath. They've been traveling three days, covering about 25 miles a day. And they're coming there towards Ziglag and they see the smoke still smoldering. As they look at their city, they see that that it's been burned to the ground and their hearts are filled with despair and horror because their families are missing. For all they know, their families are dead. And these mighty warriors who were with David, they begin to weep and to wail and were told that they weep so greatly that they wept till they could weep no more. They cried their eyes out. They were exhausted by their grief. But then their grief turns to anger. As some of them look at David and they say, it's his fault. It's David's fault. If it wasn't for David insisting that we go and fight with the Philistines against Israel, we would have been here to protect our families. Let's get David. Let's stone David. And it's at this point that David finally comes to the end of himself. And he seeks the Lord once again. And it's there in his seeking of the Lord that he hears the Lord say to him, Go and pursue, go after those who have taken your families and you will recover all. And David is somehow able to rally the troops and and they begin pursuing the Amalekites with incredible pace, driving, you know, just driven by this feeling of desperation, driven by the love for their families and driven by this confidence of this promise that they have from the Lord that they will recover all. And this is all after they've already marched for three days covering 25 miles a day. And while they're charging, while they're pursuing 200 of David's men, 200 of the 600, 200 of, or one third of the army, they grow faint. And they tell David, man, we can't keep up. We can't make it. We can't go another step, David. We're just worn out. And so David leaves them by the brook Bezor to watch the supplies and David and the rest of the army, they charge after the Amalekites and the Lord gives them victory just like he promised. And they recover all, all of their families, all of their livestock, all that the Amalekites had taken. And even more so because they took what the Amalekites had. But something happens when they come back to Bezor where, there's two, where those 200 men who were weary are waiting. Where those 200 men who were guarding the supplies are waiting, And that's where I want to pick up in verse 21. It says, Now David came to the 200 men who had been so weary that they could not follow David, whom they also had made to stay at the brook Bezor. And so they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near the people, he greeted them or he saluted them. Some translations say it was a special kind of greeting. And then all of the wicked and worthless men of those who went with David answered and said, Because they did not go up with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered except for every man's wife and children, that they may lead them away and depart. Now there is tension. In David's army, as some of those who were strong enough to continue on with David, say concerning these men who were left behind, give them their wives and their kids and tell them to get lost. We don't need them anyway. It's these faint-hearted men that I want us to consider today. And there are three things that I want us to take note of this morning. Three things concerning, that are true concerning the faint-hearted. Because you see... All of us have times. All of us go through seasons of being faint hearted. All of us have times and situations in our walk with the Lord where we just feel like, you know, we can't take another step. Lord, in the midst of this trial that I'm in, I just feel like I can't go any further. And so this morning, as we consider these men, as we consider this scene, I want us to take note of the reality of the faint hearted. The rejoicing of the faint-hearted. And thirdly, the rewarding of the faint-hearted. First of all, the reality of the faint-hearted. Again, David, he starts off with 600 men. These are his mighty men. Now, they weren't, they, didn't, they weren't always that way. We read first of them that they were in debt and in distress and discontent. But they became a great and mighty army following after David. But at this particular time, a third of them... Could not go into the battle. 200 of them were just too weak to press on. Now these were men who loved David. These were men who were loyal to David. These were men who would follow David anywhere. But at this time they just can't go on. Their hands are hanging down. Their their knees are feeble. They're just burned out. They've already have been traveling for three days, 25 miles a day. They've covered 75 miles and they come to this place. They're on this pace. And it's like, man, David, we just can't go on. They were burned out. And Sometimes we find ourselves in situations where that's how we feel. Lord, I just can't go on. I'm weary. I'm tired. I need a break. They weren't just burned out, though. They were bummed out. They were still grieving over the loss of their families. After that three day march, as they came around the bend and they were heading towards Ziglag, they were expecting to see welcome home signs. Welcome home, dad. Welcome home, husband. But instead, they see the smoke. They see the the city in ruins. And there's no sound of life anywhere. They had lost their wives, they had lost their children. They thought that they were dead. Guys, think how you would feel. How would you react if you came home today and your house was burned down and your family, your wife, your kids was nowhere to be found? That's how these men felt. Now, sometimes it's not the burning of a physical house. It's not even the the loss of of physical family, but it's just the struggles that we face and that we go through within our family structure. Sometimes it's the pressure of mounting bills. Sometimes it's the pressure of of, of maybe a a problem with somebody within the the family. And and we find ourselves just being worn out. We We find that that situation causes this incredible impact to come upon us, that we're not able to keep up the pace, that we're not able to keep moving, that we're not able to go forward and we kind of fall behind in the pace that we were keeping as we were running with and following after the Lord. So they were bummed out by their circumstances. But I would venture to say that they were also bummed out because of the change that they saw in David. Their leader had become an, an enigma to them. I mean, here was this man who had killed Goliath. Here was this man who, who had wiped out a host of the Philistines. Here was this man who was this worshiper of God. He would write these beautiful, you know, worship psalms. And, and, and here was this man who just a few weeks before, when he had the opportunity to kill his arch enemy Saul, he didn't take it. And he said, I will not touch the Lord's anointed. But here was this man who now just a few days earlier was ready to march with the Philistines. Against the people of Israel. That he was going to to march with the the enemies of God against the people of God. That he was marching, ready to march against the Lord's anointed. And I think as these men were looking at David, they're going, what's happening? Is he really going to lead us into battle against the anointed of the Lord? This man who wouldn't even, you know, when he had the opportunity in the cave to kill Saul and he didn't do it. Not once, but twice, because he didn't want to touch the Lord's anointed. Was he really going to do this? And the inconsistencies that they saw in David caused them to just be blown out and perplexed. And there's a warning in this for us. Anytime that you fix your eyes upon man, you will be blown out. You know why? Because all of us have inconsistencies. Every single one of us. That's why we are told in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, that as we are running, we are to run looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Because you and I, we change like the weather. But Jesus never changes. Jesus never changes. He never disappoints. He he never disillusions us. And so we must fix our eyes firmly upon him. Lest we become blown out and become faint hearted. And so these men, they were burned out. They were bummed out. They were blown out. But they didn't back out. And I want you to note that. Even though they could not press on, they did not resign and return to their old life. They didn't say to David, "Okay, we've had enough. You know, you're on your own. We're not going to be in your army anymore. We're just going to go, you know, back and do our own thing. They didn't do that. As faint hearted as they were, they stayed committed to David and submitted to David. They walked with him in his successes and they would stay with him in his setbacks. They stayed committed to him, and when he said to stay and guard the supplies, that's what they were going to do. And the application for us in this is, will you, are you willing to follow Jesus no matter where the turn might take you? Are you willing to, to follow him no matter which way the road goes? Knowing this, that Jesus will never ever lead you into a situation that is beyond what he is able to be your strength to see you through. He'll never lead you into a situation beyond what you are able because there's an ability that you have with you because he is with you that goes far beyond what you could ever imagine. You know, sometimes we have a little bit of a wrong concept. When we say things like this, that, you know, the Lord isn't going to lead you someplace that, that, you know, he isn't going to first, you know, maybe prepare you for or give you a love for and and that type of thing. You know, it's been said that if, you know, God's going to send you to Africa, he's going to give you, you know, a love for bugs. And I think there's a truth to that. But here's what I see in the scripture: a lot of times that love for the bugs doesn't happen until you get there. It's not like you know you're sitting here thinking, you know, I just I just want to go to Africa and hang out with those you know gigantic mosquitoes and you know that type of thing. I mean, think about it. You take a guy like Jonah. God comes to Jonah and says, "I want you to go to the Ninevites." Jonah hated the Ninevites. He was, you know, he was hoping that they were going to go to hell. I mean, he was, you know, he didn't want to go and preach because he knew that they would repent and God would have forgiveness on them. And he was like, you know, he hated them. But God was saying, I want you to go. It wasn't like God gave him a love for the Ninevites before he sent him there. Think of Paul. Paul was one who who was, you know, he's thinking, I'm the perfect guy to minister to the Jews I was trained under Gamaliel, the best teacher in, in, in the history of Israel. And what does God do? He sends Paul to the Gentiles. Now, Paul tried very hard to still go to the Jews. Every city he went to, he first went to the synagogue. And, you know, it ended up in him getting beat up and, you know, stoned a couple times. And, and you know, ran out of town and huge riots would erupt. You know, all because he kept trying to go and, and teach the Jews. I wonder what would have happened if he just would have went and started hanging out with the Gentiles, you know, if if maybe he would have escaped a lot of that trouble. And God, oftentimes, he sends us into situations that, that we think, you know, that's the last place that I want to go. That's the last place that I want to be. But he sends you there and you end up going, Lord, this is wonderful. And I see what you've done because he sent you there because he's seeking to do a work, not just through you, but a work in you. But are we willing to follow him wherever he might send us? Are we willing to follow him in our times of success as well as our times of difficulty? These men in our text, though they were faint hearted, they stayed linked to David, loyal to David, and submitted to David as their authority and as their king. And I believe in this room here today, there are those who are faint hearted. And whatever circumstances that you find yourself in, it's caused you to just become, you've slowed down in the battle. You've slowed down in the race. For some of you, it's been financial problems. For others of you, it's been family problems. For some of you, it's been sickness or it's been something that has just come into your life and it's interrupted your life in such a way that you just found yourself going, man, I just can't keep the pace like I used to. Something is wrong. But even though you're not pressing on as hard as you once did, even though you're not keeping the pace like you once have, your heart is still with the Lord. You are still committed to the Lord. You still love the Lord. You still have a desire to serve the Lord. But physically, emotionally, maybe spiritually, you feel like you just can't take another step. Well, take courage. And Notice what happens here in our story as we see the rejoicing of the faint hearted. You see, David left these men, but here's the thing, first of all, that, that was a source of their rejoicing was David came back. After the battle, after the victory, he doesn't just, you know, march from where he conquers the Amalekites back to Ziglag and say, oh yeah, those guys at Bazar, I'll just forget about them. They're a bunch of wimps anyway. He doesn't do that. He comes back to them. And these men were glad that he returned and they went out to meet him and he greeted them. He gives them this special greeting. He he salutes them and picture this scene. I mean, there's a host of men and they're driving all of this, this, these animals as they're heading there towards Bezer. And these men at Bezer, they hear the sound, they hear the commotion. And then they look up and they see these men and they see these cattle and they hear they're singing this song, you know, David's spoil. And they look beyond the cattle and beyond those men to another group of men towards the back of the pack. And their arms are just full of stuff. And they're singing another song. David has recovered all. He's been victorious. And these men begin to join in the song. And they're running out to meet David. And they're singing, David spoil. And David has recovered all. But their rejoicing is momentarily interrupted by the words of some of these men who were with David. As they say, hey, you were too weak to go and fight. So guess what? You're not getting anything. It's interesting to me that the Holy Spirit chooses to refer to these men as wicked and worthless men. The King James Version calls them sons of Belial or sons of the devil. Now, why does the Holy Spirit, as he inspires the scriptures, choose to refer to these men in that way? I think the reason is simple. Because condemnation is always the tactic of the devil. Condemnation is always part of his words. And if you haven't got this down, get it down today. That voice of condemnation, that voice that comes to you and says, God doesn't love you anymore. He doesn't want to have anything to do with you anymore. Just, you know, give up, go on your way. Just, you know, God's forgotten you. So you forget him. That is always that voice that seeks to drive you away from God is always the voice of the enemy the voice of conviction that seeks to say hey this thing that you're involved in or or that sin i paid the price for it and that you need to turn away from it i want to be able to say what sin that voice of conviction the voice of the holy spirit is always the one that's seeking to pull you near these men were called wicked and worthless men sons of the devil because at this point they were being used as an instrument of the devil who always wants God's people to feel useless, condemned, and defeated. And these worthless men had these condemning words. But watch what David, the man after God's own heart, said. Verse 23. And David said, My brethren, you shall not do so with what the Lord has given us, who has preserved us and delivered into our hands the troop that came against us. For who will heed you in this matter? But as is his part is who goes down to the battle. And so shall his part be who stays by the supplies. They shall share alike. And so it was from that day forward that he made a statue and an ordinance for Israel to this day. The wicked and the worthless men looked at the spoil and said, We fought for this spoil and it's ours. David looked at the spoil and said, look at what the Lord has given to us. And when you have that type of attitude, you cannot help but share. You cannot help but give when you realize that the blessing that you have has been given to you by the Lord. You you want to share it. You want to, to give it out. You want it to be expanded. You want it to go beyond just your personal Life to bless those who are around you, and so we see David here was the leader of these men who were faint hearted, but he also was their advocate. And we see here that he pleads for them according to in two ways he pleads their their unity and he pleads their usefulness. First of all, he pleads their unity. David uses the word us three times in verse 23 when he speaks of the battle and when he speaks of the spoil. David said that God has given the spoil not to you alone who fought, but to all of us. He's given it to us. He's preserved us. He's delivered us. We're linked together, in other words, is what David is saying. We're linked with them. Paul spoke in a similar, or of a similar unity in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. When he spoke of the body, the church, or the church being one body, One body having many parts, one body having many members with different functions, but we are one body. We're linked together in Christ. And he would go on to explain there that, you know, one part of the body can't say to another, oh, you know, we don't need you. You're not significant. You know, you're kind of, you know, hidden or, you know, it'd be like, you know, the hand saying to the big toe, ah, you know, we don't need you. You know, you're crammed in that shoe and nobody sees you anyway, you know, type of a thing. Nor can, you know, a part of the body say to the rest, you know, I'm real insignificant. I'm useless. You don't need me. The big toe couldn't say to the rest, you know, hey, I don't need you. You know, your, your hand can't say to your, your arm, you know, I don't need that arm. You know, I can just attach myself, you know, right up here on the shoulder and we'll just get rid of, you know, the, the arm. I mean, imagine that going around with two hands on your shoulders. You know, I mean, you'd be like little wings and, you know, to pick up things, you'd have to bend over like this, you know, type of a thing. And that's the point. Paul was actually kind of being sarcastic and saying, look, you know, God has formed the human body in this way. And every single part has a function and each member is important and each part, you know, has its place. And so, too, is the body of Christ. We are joined together. We are linked together. There's a unity that we have as we are joined to Jesus. He's the head and we make up the body. And so first, David gives them this reason to rejoice because of their unity. And secondly, he pleads their usefulness. As he says, notice in verse 24 again. For who will heed you in this matter but... As his part is who goes down to the battle, so shall his part be who stays by the supplies. They shall share alike. Some went to fight, some stayed behind, but we're going to share. No army fights well when its camp is unguarded. And it is a great thing for a church to know that its bases are well guarded by those who are praying. Those who are committed to that ministry of prayer are those who are, in a sense, like these men, guarding the stuff, guarding the camp. Some might be teaching and others might be preaching and some are sharing in pulpits or in classrooms or in home fellowships or, or in jails or wherever it might be. Some are out on the mission field, but we have great comfort in knowing that there's a certain number who are praying who are interceding. I love it when we go on a missions trip and we do those 24-hour prayer things back here at home and everybody's praying and I've been out there where you can just, you, you feel it, you sense it like, like you cannot believe. And all of a sudden, you know, we're hitting, we're running up against a brick wall and it's like the, the doors begin to open and you just know, man, people back home were praying at that moment. Charles Spurgeon said this, to me, it is a boundless solace that I live in the prayers of thousands. And his church had an incredible praying ministry. There were always hundreds of people at every service down below in the basement praying while he preached. And he said that I found the boundless solace that I live in the prayers of thousands. And I will not say which does the better service, the man that preaches or the man that prays. But I know this, that we can do better without the voice that preaches than without the heart that prays. The petitions of our bedridden sisters are the wealth of the church. Spurgeon said that those ladies who, man, they, all they could do is they're, they're sick and in bed and they're just praying. That's the wealth of the church. The kind of service which seems most commonplace among men is often the most precious to God. Prayer is that which so often seems most commonplace. But what are we told in the book of Revelation about the prayers of God's people? That they're like Incense. It's like incense. It's like a sweet aroma. It's coming up to God. And the Lord, it's like he sees his people starting to pray. And it's like, oh, here comes. Just filling his presence with a sweet fragrance. So these men could rejoice that David came back. They could rejoice that they... Were unified. They could rejoice in their usefulness. And lastly, they could rejoice in their reward. The rewarding of the faint hearted. We note here that David, as he comes back to them, he says, they are going to receive an equal share with those who went into the battle. And the same thing holds true about Jesus, the captain of our salvation. Jesus is coming back. And he would say to those of us who are faint hearted today, don't listen to those words of condemnation. Don't listen to those accusations. Don't listen to those who want to just beat you down. But hear my heart and hear my voice as, I'm coming and I'm going to salute you. I'm coming and I'm going to reward you. Bezor, that, that place means good news. And it was good news for these men to see David return. And so too, Jesus is coming back for us. And that is good news. And he's coming back not to condemn, not to condemn you, but to salute you. He's coming. We are told in the scriptures to take his church. The trumpet is going to Sound. And in a moment, in a twinkling eye, we're going to be caught up. We're going to be changed. We're going to meet the Lord in the air. And Paul the Apostle, writing in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 about the rapture of the church, that day when Jesus comes to the clouds to take his church, writing about that event, Paul said, Therefore, comfort one another with these words. The reality of and the looking for the return of Jesus is good news. It's a cause for rejoicing. He's coming back to reward us. He's coming back to take us to be with him. In just a few weeks on Sunday nights, we're going to start a new series entitled, Are You Concerned About the Future? And we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 24 where Jesus gives the longest response to any one question that he was ever asked. He was asked, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And he spells it out. As we look at our world and what's going on in our world today, as we see, you know, what happened on September 11th. As we see the continued friction mounting there in Israel. When we see Pakistan and India coming together and there's talk of of nuclear weapons being used. As we see all of that, or maybe you caught this in the LA Times just a a couple of uh, weeks ago. There's a company in Florida that has designed a microchip. It's going to be released in South America in 90 days. In this microchip, they can plant it underneath your skin, and it has all the information that anybody would need to know about you, to track you, to to monitor you in case you you were kidnapped. They'd be able to find you. And this company is putting together this microchip and they're trying to, you know, get it released here in the United States. And they're they're stating that in this microchip it would have all the information that you would need. to. You could unlock your car. You could get money out of the bank. You could unlock your house by simply just, you know, waving wherever that chip is imprinted across, you know, some little device. What does the Bible say in the last days? That men are going to receive a mark. They're not gonna be able to buy or to sell unless they have this mark in their forehand or, or in their forehead or in the top of their hand. Maybe you've seen that commercial, it was about a year ago. It blew my mind when it came out. The guy's there in the supermarket. He's got this trench coat on. He looks like, you know, kind of creepy. And he's, you know, taking stuff and sticking it in his trench coat. And you're thinking, okay, this is going to be, you know, some type of a commercial about shoplifting. And he gets all this stuff and then he walks out and he walks through, you know, kind of the little scanner things that you, you know, walk through like when you're going to the library. And uh, the security guard says, sir. And you're thinking, here it comes. You know, he's going to get busted the security guard walks up and goes, oh, you forgot your receipt. And the whole idea, you've probably seen it, you know, is that somewhere implanted on his body was everything they needed. It's like you're going to go to the grocery store and you get your groceries and the the clerk takes that little gun and points at your forehead and, you know, (laughs) shoots you. Rings up your bill. And it's not that far away. And it's all an indication that we are getting closer, that the Lord... Is coming back. Be encouraged today. Especially if you are faint hearted. That Jesus is not going to leave you. Or forsake you. He is coming back. You who are by the brook bays or know this. The Lord is coming back. And he comes back. He's going to salute you. Because you have remained loyal to him. Amen. Though even though you might have grown faint, even though you might have just felt like, oh Lord, I just, I'm weary. Can't run like I I once did. You know, there are times when we all go through this. There are times when I grow faint, but I can rejoice in the fact that I have brothers and sisters that at that moment they're strong and they're surging and I am joined to them. I get a share in their blessing. I'm inspired by them. We are united together and we shall be blessed together. If you are faint-hearted today, rejoice in the fact that there are those who are strong. And they will be a source of blessing for your life. Just like those who were strong were a source of blessing for those who stayed behind here in this story. No matter how faint-hearted you feel, I want to encourage you, don't forsake fellowship. Don't back out. For that is where you will be blessed blessed as we come together here in this way charles spurgeon said this you of little faith you despondencies you much afraid you feeble minded you that sigh more than you sing you that would but cannot you that have a great heart for holiness but feel beaten back in your struggles the lord shall give you his love his grace His favor, as surely as he gives it to those who can do great things in his name. Turn with me to Second Samuel, and this is where we're going to end. Chapter two. I want you to note here what happened to the faint hearted. Saul is now dead. David is going to be anointed as king first over Judah, which will take place in Hebron. And then secondly, over all of Israel, they're going up to Hebron. And notice what it says in verse two. So David went up there and his two wives also. And then verse three, it says, and David brought up the men who were with him. Every man underlined that with his household. And so they dwelt in the cities of Hebron. Note that. Every man and his household was brought up, even those who were faint-hearted. All those who were with David, they were brought up. When he's coming into his kingdom, they're with him. They're rewarded. They're included as being a part of the kingdom of David. Jesus said, Come unto me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you a speech No. I will give you a kick in the pants. No. Come unto me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You see, here's the thing. The issue is not whether or not we are on the front lines or we are faint hearted and staying with the stuff. What matters is who Jesus is. And that's our confidence. That's our blessed hope. That he is faithful even when we remain faithless. So, today, here at the end of this year, the end of 2001, and you look back and you just think, man, what a hard year it's been for me. If you are bummed out, burned out, and blown out, I want to encourage you do not back out, but hold true to the one who loves you when you can do nothing more than but pray you can do a lot pray guard the stuff surround the camp cover the church and the lord who is coming back will be faithful to reward you because he loves you and he knows that you are but dust he knows our weakness and you will find that this season in your life this time of faint-heartedness is going to pass and you'll be strong and you'll be surging and you'll be going again you'll be there at the front lines and there will be those back behind who are going to be the faint-hearted this time don't condemn them don't blast them but seek to encourage them that they might That you might be not an instrument of, of the enemy, but an instrument of the Lord to build up your brothers and sisters. That they might be able to receive of your blessing, of your victory, in Jesus' name.